Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got such a fascinating show for you today. I'm really excited to have two really, really fascinating guests who are going to tell us about really a kind of accidental experiment they did that ended up giving them some really interesting information they're going to share with you about potential uses you may not have thought of for dexmedetomidine. So we're going to talk today about that medicine, often known as Presidex, but we'll try to use its generic name, dexmedetomidine. Uh, and we're going to talk about how it can be used as an adjuvant in epidurals, in uh, spinals, and in peripheral nerve blocks, as well as a couple other things we'll just touch on. But let me introduce my two guests. I have with me Dr. Michael Douglas, who completed a combined internal medicine and anesthesiology residency at Loma Linda University. And now he works both there and at Riverside University Health System, practicing anesthesia and perioperative medicine. And I also have with me Dr. Leonard Salonik, who is uh, a both internal medicine and anesthesia trained as well. He did an internal medicine residency at Loma Linda and then an anesthesia residency at Mass General in Boston. And he is board certified in pain medicine and addiction medicine as well. So two really, really well-educated, well-trained guests who have some really interesting stuff to share with us. And gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we're going to start by just tell us a little bit about the kind of different uses of dexmedetomidine. I think most people know it as a medication used maybe in the ICU, maybe as an infusion in the OR for anxiolysis, but there's a lot more to it than that. So tell us what different uses do you think of when it comes to dexmedetomidine? Well, today we're focused on its use in obstetric anesthesia and should mention everything we talk about today is off-label use because uh, dexmedetomidine is not FDA-approved to use in pregnant patients. So it has a role IV for sedation and shivering. Epidurals, it has, we have found some real utility, intrathecal, peripheral nerve blocks, of course, and then just briefly nebulized uh, dexmedetomidine for postural puncture headaches. Really interesting. Okay. And we'll say up front that, as you said, these are off-label uses. We are not advocating that anybody go out and do this. This is for your information so you can have these discussions with your group, with your pharmacist, with your hospital um, P&T committee, if you want to think about whether this is something you'd want to either try or study. But of course, don't uh, don't go out and say that we told you to do it. We're just talking about the interesting possibilities here. All right. So, um, gentlemen, tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in this. The I, I kind of alluded up front to the accidental experiment. So tell us what happened. Yeah. So in uh, last year, in 2022, our hospital, during the supply chain shortage uh, crisis that were going on, our hospital experienced a severe critical shortage in multiple things. And one of those things was fentanyl. We ran out of fentanyl for six weeks. Fentanyl, it was only reserved for special use cases, and you had to check it out. And so as a result, it was removed from all our labor epidurals, and we started using 0.2% ropivacaine, 
And with this formulation, we were having a lot more incidents of needing to do top-offs, not controlled pain, more motor blockade um, uh, than when we previously had the fentanyl in there. And uh, this quickly forced us to not only use uh, opioid sparing techniques that, you know, we've been using more and more that's kind of come out in the anesthesia literature to try to avoid opiates, but it was just overnight, you couldn't use it as much, like remotely as much as we used to. Um, and then we had to find alternatives uh, to provide better care for our patients. So one of the alternatives we explored was dexmedetomidine in the labor epidurals. So we didn't like the labor, the motor block we were getting with the high concentration. So we went back to 0.1% ropey, but added 0.5 micrograms per milliliter of dexmedetomidine. And we found this very useful. It, great analgesia, not as much motor block as the 0.2% ropipocaine. And this led us to realize how versatile the uh, dexmedetomidine was. Um, we started to use dexmedetomidine as boluses in our top-offs um, and in a variety of things. And then this led us to explore the literature and start using it intrathecally. Um, and again, that helped with fentanyl sparing, but also overall goal that's very prominent these days of opioid sparing. So sounds like you were forced by necessity to, you couldn't use fentanyl, so you tried putting, uh, informed, of course, by the literature and the fact that clonidine, closely related, I know you'll tell us about this, to uh, dexmedetomidine is, you know, is something that's been used as an adjunct uh, for many years. Uh, you tried this and you found that it worked really, really well. So tell us a little bit about the history and, and details you think people need to know about dexmedetomidine to inform the, the rest of the discussion. Well, I've been using spinal clonidine since the 1990s. Um, so I was familiar with the actions of alpha-2 agonists um, in, for spinals. Um, FDA approved it in last millennium, 1999, um, but for IV sedation only. And it rapidly gained use in the operating room because we discovered its versatility uh, there. Mechanism of action, we call it an alpha-2 blocker, but as we know, no small molecule drug interacts with only one protein. For example, naproxen interacts with 700 proteins, and we don't know which most of those proteins do. So the main use we know is an alpha-2 agonist, and um, but it also works on an HCN channel blockade. HCN I have to say this in rhyme, almost hyperpolarization activated cyclonucleotide gated cation channel. Okay, HC. That is a mouthful. <laughs> so, and it's the HCN blockade that's associated with its use in regional anesthesia. There are no alpha-2 receptors <clears throat> on an axon and on a lot of um, some nerves, but their HCN um channels are distributed throughout the um, nervous system as well as other areas in the body. <clears throat> so the alpha-2 blockade and maybe the HCN, you know, works in the substantia gelatinosa and the dorsal horn of, of the spinal cord, you know, does good things like inhibit release of substance P and glutamate. Um, 
the HCM blockade potentiates local anesthetics. You get some vasoconstriction because there is always a little alpha-1 agonist action. Um, so that, like epinephrine, can delay uptake of, of the solution. And then there's also a central effect with sedation by working in the brain, the locus ceruleus, um, which is the primary site of noradrenergic neurons in the brain. I think we're all fairly familiar with its use in non-OB anesthesia. Um, it certainly has a wide role in opioid sparing anesthetics. Um, you know, sedation, anxiolysis, light lysis, the sympatholysis, analgesia, not good for amnesia. You know, if you sedate someone with, with de dexmedetomidine, only about a 50% chance of amnesia. And OB, that's, that's actually a good thing, though. Um, it's closely related to clonidine, which, as I mentioned, there's lots of experience in literature on clonidine. Clonidine is only FDA-approved for uh, epidural use, a special um, formulation called Duraclon that's preservative-free. Um, but, for example, I use clonidine in intrathecal infusion pumps, pain pumps, and there's, again, literature and support for that. For example, the polyanalgesic consensus conferences um, cover its use. Dexmedetomidine is a more selective alpha-2 agonist, you know, probably 8 to 10 times more selective than, than um, clonidine, and provides at least similar analgesia, but a better side effect profile than the clonidine. You know, a major issue is safety in pregnancy. Is it safe? Um, the package industry calls it category C due to potential harm in animal studies. In vitro, um, dex metatomony has the potential to enhance frequency of uterine contractions. There's high placenta uptake of the dexmedetomidine, but it remains in the placenta. There's little to no fetal serum levels detected. Um, and studied with IV infusion and bolus induction doses, no change in fetal heart rate, blood pressure, one in five minute APGARs. There's no neurotoxicity. In fact, local, as we know, all local anesthetics are neurotoxic. Um, dexmedetomidine actually protects against uh, neurotoxicity of the local anesthetics. It has an anti-inflammatory action around uh, the nerves. Great. Quick quick point of clarification. It, we, we do want to clarify, it's an alpha-2 agonist, right? You mentioned alpha-2 oh, blockade yeah. a couple of times, but oh, alpha-2, yeah. Misspoke. Yeah, so alpha-2 agonist and um, through that agonism can down-regulate the... Um, Act, the uh, active neurotransmitters like norepinephrine. Correct. It, it has presynaptic receptors which um, decrease the penocytosis of the um, of, of the norepinephrine and epinephrine. Great. Okay. So um, interesting that it gets to the placenta but doesn't get to the fetus um, and you know, that's important to know because I think a lot of times we just cite placental transfer as, as the important thing. But, you know, if it's obviously if it's not getting to the fetus, then its presence in the placenta probably doesn't matter much. Um, 
but still category C. And so people have to take that into account uh, when considering its use. Certainly, I remember using it a lot in epidurals uh, as a resident and it worked great <laughs> and seemed to be very, very safe. But that's not uh, that's certainly not an official study. Um, OK, so let's talk about it, its intrathecal use. Um, you mentioned intrathecal clonidine you've been doing for a long time. Um, let's talk about what you all have found in terms of intrathecal use of dexmedetomidine. So dexmedetomidine, we add fentanyl to uh, spinals for cesarean deliveries because it gives you a rapid, dense block. If you just use bupivacaine and morphine alone, it can take 15 minutes plus to get an adequate block. With fentanyl, that time is much shorter, and, and it's the same thing with intrathecal dexmedetomidine. Rapid, dense block. You also increase the duration of the block. I don't think that intrathecal uh, dexmedetomidine is a private practice drug. It's a, it's for use in academic practices because you have a fairly prolonged recovery time. <clears throat> um, probably an hour longer than bupivacaine uh, fentanyl alone. So, but I've pretty much stopped doing combined spinal epidurals for potentially long cases because we can get enough time. If it goes beyond four hours, well, <laughs> you can't lay on an OR table comfortably for four hours a week. Um, you're getting to the limits of what people can tolerate. Um, almost all the studies that have been done with intrathecal dexmedetomidine are used five micrograms for convenience since it comes... Um, Diluted at four micrograms per mL, that's what we, we use uh, four micrograms, and we found it works very well. So it's benefits in there, Op opioid sparing, replacing fentanyl to give you a rapid, dense block, um, and uh, prolonged duration. The side effect of less shivering. Um, it's extremely rare to see shivering with the uh, dexmedetomidine spinal. Yeah, and for, for me, because uh, I, I find it's very dense when it hits, it hits hard and for a long time, uh, making sure you have a phenylephrine drip set up for these um, immediately, um, as you usually do for these cases. Um, but you get a dense on, uh, block and onset in seconds. And we're using, uh, again, between 10 and 13.5 milligrams of a hyperbaric pivocaine. Uh, with this. Um, for me, my use in this is actually if we're considering a, a spinal and a, like an, a very elderly patient um, and you can let it drop uh, and you're not going to, you're below T10, um, you can get a really nice long block for a hip surgery, even doing a replacement. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I mean, sorry, revision. Um, so I, I do some global anesthesia. I, I go to Kenya regularly and this blew some of the anesthesia, anesthesia, uh, the KNRAs there, they're the CRNA equivalent and the anesthesiologist minds there where, and the surgeon was super happy that they could do a spinal for six hours. Um, because you know, there, they don't have machines in every room or patients don't want to pay for general anesthesia and they would opt for spinal. Um, so it has some major implications there. And so you can get a six hour spinal, and that's with doing just the four mics of dexmedetomidine combined with your bupivacaine? Yes. Robust doses. Yeah. You're using 15 milligrams of, of 
Yeah, but because you can let it drop all the way, but I'm using 15 milligrams. Okay, yeah. but still six hours is impressive. So 15 milligrams of bupivacaine, four mics of dexmedetomidine, and you're getting six hours of, of spinal action. Um, yeah. And the, yeah, that's really impressive. Okay, so um, there are, as you mentioned, um, some data to back this up. Do you want to just touch on some of the things and then we'll list them in the show notes and people can um, take a look for themselves? Sure. Yeah. So uh, one of the, there's some really good meta analysis on this. Uh, the most recent one I think was done in 2021, 2020. 2020. 2020. Okay. Um, where they uh, put together 25 RCTs. Uh, and so we're able to total up uh, almost 1500 patients. So 1478 patients. Um, and uh, they saw that there was an increase on sentry uh, blocks of 134 minutes uh, and motor blockade of 114 minutes increased from that with with fentanyl. It's actually compared the pivocaine with fentanyl in most of those studies. Um, and then uh, and then when compared, and there's a few times when it's compared to bupivacaine alone, and it was 217 minutes uh, to to the first uh, um, needing uh, any sort of opiate. And again, these studies are largely done in India, Iran, Egypt, China, Nepal, and Jordan. Um, there's one U.S. trial, I think, out there. Um, actually, that's in epidurals. Um, so... Not really done in the U.S., but again, it's what's readily available. And the, a lot of these countries have been moving away from opiate use kind of aggressively as well. And just a footnote on that. Our experience is it delays PACU discharge by about an hour. Um, it doesn't, you know, the patient is not in the PACU for six hours. But compared to a fentanyl, uh, morphine, bupivacaine spinal, about an hour longer in the PACU. Okay. And let's talk about side effects. So what um, has, have some of the studies found or what have you found uh, are the potential adverse effects or maybe difference in side effects when you add dexmedetomidine to the spinal compared to, let's say, bupivacaine alone or bupivacaine and fentanyl? So less nausea, less vomiting, uh, some, uh, and less puritis. I've noticed um, some of the studies say that there was no difference. Um, there is a relatively uh, transient risk of bradycardia and hypotension. Again, that's that's what that's fairly normal with our uh, spinals, and I think it's just due to the potency. So, depending on how high you allow the spinal to rise, just with how potent it is, you're going to get a very aggressive sympatectomy. So, you need to be very cognizant of that. And so, that was noticed in in these trials, at least for intrathecal. Um, the epidural surprisingly didn't have any issues with that. Uh, and peripheral nerve blocks, when we get to that, there's a little bit of uh, non-clinically evident like hypoxia and, and um, uh, uh, a little bit of drops in blood pressure, but nothing that was uh, clinically uh, relevant. Okay. So with the intrathecal, you want to be ready for and ready to treat hypotension, bradycardia. Um, you mentioned you're going to already have a phenylephrine drip set up, which would be to address the hypotension, though, um, you know, maybe for the bradycardia, you might want to think about uh, something. Would you give some glycopyrrolate along with it? Would you think about using something like norepinephrine? How would you approach that? The bradycardia occurs slowly. And it, it's, you know, if you're blocking the cardiac accelerators or triggering the visual gerish reflex, 
you have time. It's not something that's going to happen in two minutes. So I, we have the glyco drawn up, but we don't give it in every, every case. Yeah. And I okay. think that would be a good area for studies actually to see how often glyco is given. I, I believe we do give a little bit higher doses total of phenylephrine, but uh, I rarely am pushing glycopyrrolide or anything like that. It again has to do with the level of the spinal. So it, which is kind of inherent to any spinal, you need to make sure that you're, you're assessing its level and changing the, uh, the tilt of the bed to sure. either go reverse Trendelenburg or, uh, or Trendelenburg to modify your levels. Great. All right. Let's move on to epidural loading. So, and then we're going to separate out epidural loading from epidural, uh, continuous infusion. So how do you approach loading an epidural with dexmedetomidine? So, uh, the literature actually uses one mic for per kilogram for loading epidurals. Uh, and it was kind of extreme. And so we were like, well, we know it works with four mics intrathecally. That's where we're going to start. So we started with that and it gave us the desired outcome. So just doing four mics in the epidural space will give you a very potent block. So this is when uh, you have a stat C-section and you want to convert an epidural instead of doing, you know, epi, lidocaine, uh, uh, bicarb. Uh, uh, we are instead doing Presidex and lidocaine. And if you have some time, you can buffer it. But I haven't had to buffer it. If you, I kind of had this rule of if you meet them down the hallway, you can you know, get them with the, the lidocaine and epi. If you, they're in the room, you're going to have to use chloroprocaine. Um, and then you're going to have to change it out with some lidocaine once, once you're underway to make sure it sets. With this, you can meet them in the doorway with the Presidex and lidocaine, and they're converted by the time they come to the table. And um, you, it hits like a, like a spinal in a way that, I mean, not, not as fast onset, um, but at some point you may actually have to run a phenylephrine drip with usually with loading an epidural. I don't have to. So my personal record is nine minutes from decision to delivery of the infant. So for running epidural, so if was able to use dexmedetomidine, we lidocaine with buffered lidocaine. And by the time the patient was on the table, they had a good level, was able to prep, prep and go. Yeah. Wow. This All right. So you're... So you're doing uh, maybe 10 cc's of lidocaine with four mics of, of dexmedetomidine? Sorry, yeah. So we're using 10 to 15 cc's of 2% lidocaine with uh, four mics of uh, dexmedetomidine. If it's a Category 2 or, or 3 section, you can titrate to effect. For Category 1, I always use 15 because I don't want to wait and say, oh, 10 is not enough. So I've never had 15 be too much. I've never had a high level from that. Okay. And that, I mean, amazingly, your four mics total compared to one mic per kilo, I mean, in a hundred kilo patient, right? That's 25 times less uh, than, than, and yet you're seeing the results. So it makes you think those studies that use one mic per kilo were just using way too much. We've gotten good results with, we call it microdosing. Um, and uh, so... In fact, we're trying two mics per kilo, you know, in a non-emergency, and it's working well. Right. And what's also two, great. Two mics, not, two mics total, I'm sorry. Two mics two. total. Two mics total. Okay. And so that even works well. And do you find that that's similar? It's a little slower in onset maybe than the four mics? Is that why you say non-emergency setting? 
So I'm using this in like total hips. We don't want them camping out in the PACU forever. Um, but again, surgeons get impatient if the block doesn't set up quickly. Well, for the... Uh... And for sections, um, again, for category two and three, there's not as much of a rush. We don't see as much hemodynamic effect. Okay. Yeah, they, they really have done the, the titration studies like they've done on the uh, in running epidurals, and it's it they very quickly you get the desired effect. Uh, so they they've looked at like point three, point four, point five, and uh, you know at point three they were just like, oh, you get the same effect, you get the same, and not as much motor blockade. So if we had to, uh, for an epidural infusion, had to do it again, we'd probably use 0.3 mics per ml instead of 0.5 mics per ml along with the ropivacaine. But kind of going back to the, the bolusing of these, uh, it was it, for con- converting a spinal, uh, I, I mean, sorry, for converting a labor epidural, it's very impressive. Uh, I mean, this is how this whole conversation started when I reached out to you, Jed. Um, you were having that debate of whether or not to keep the epidural and convert it or do a spinal. And I was just, this is how this whole conversation started. I was like, well, you could throw some precedex in it and kind of told them our story. And that's how we got here. That's Um, right. Yeah. Really interesting. Right. Because, um, I think one of the concerns with trying to top up an epidural is what if you spend a bunch of time trying to top it up and it doesn't work. And then what do you do? Right. Do you do a spinal on top of that and risk a high spinal? So this sounds like you've had really a lot of success with being able to successfully do it and get a very fast, very effective block. Right. And, and for troubleshooting. So we use it for pop-offs as well. So you throw it, it, it has this, what we've noticed is it has this very interesting like synergism with whatever local anesthetic you're using. So whatever concentration you're using, it kind of potentiates whatever that concentration is. Um, it, it's not, the Presidex alone. So you just can kind of like up it by a certain percentage of where it's starting at what you should expect. So for top offs where we're giving two to four mics at a time, and then you can just hit their PCA bolus pump and it will unveil itself of whether or not it's actually working up a girl. And very quickly you make a decision. This is not working or this is working rather than doing this. You know, I'm going to go up on varying levels of concentrations of local anesthetic or you can hide it by throwing some fentanyl in there and you don't realize that that was just, you know, I am dosing a fentanyl and you just hit a non-working um, epidural. And so this, you put Presidex in it and if you get good uh, uh, good blockade, it's a working epidural and it will So you get your answer. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other area where we have found it extremely useful is for second stage labor pain. Once they start pushing... Um, then a lot of pain is through the sacral nerve roots. The sacral nerve roots are thicker than thoracic and lumbar nerve roots. So you need either a higher concentration of local anesthetic or a lot of volume and time. Um, but you don't want high concentrations because you get a motor block and then they can't participate in, in the pushing. We have found that two to four micrograms of, um, of the dexmedetomidine along with 5 ml of the dilute ropey fentanyl solution will give them great analgesia and but no loss of motor block interesting okay 
Um, all right. So, and it sounds like there are some studies that have looked at this that have found mostly, um, as you've said, a faster onset with the Presidex um, and either no difference in side effects or maybe some suggestion of some mildly increased hypotension. Um, is that about right? Anything else you want to highlight from from what has been looked at? All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back with what the data shows. I mean, faster onset, uh, also lower visceral pain, which has been always the concern with uh, that's the kind of the decision tree factors between using a labor epidural and doing a spinal. Uh, and if you had the time to do a spinal, some say you get better pain control with doing the spinal, uh, better visceral pain and control interoperatively. And with Presidex, we're not having that issue uh, with the spinal with the with the epidural. Um, and it's been confirmed in these studies specifically that, that they're, um, that they don't have as much visceral pain, uh, interoperatively. Great. All right. Let's talk about continuous labor epidurals with dexmedetomidine. How does that differ from a, a bolus dose? Well, we're, we're not, we're infrequently using continuous labor epidurals now that we have fentanyl accessible. It's more... You know, fentanyl epidurally is off-label also, um, and but it's widely accepted. There's no question about using fentanyl. <clears throat> In the dark ages, sufentanyl before that became unavailable. Um, but again, we have found it very useful with, you know, I think better analgesic experience um, be- between... Um, but, you know, the old way of doing it with fentanyl and ropey or bupivacaine isn't broken. So we stick with that for the most part. Yeah, we've stuck with it uh, because we also switched to the intermittent bolus pumps. That kind of really changed. Uh, we were having to do more top-offs with your continuous infusions with the PCA boluses. 
Um, and because we, when we lost fentanyl uh, in the solution, the, our pharmacist felt comfortable compounding it with Presidex. Uh, and then when uh, uh, fentanyl was, was back, uh, then they didn't feel that they were comfortable compounding it and making it a normal option. However, we still have it silenced in our order sets, um, which we can go live with um, anytime we do get into another short shortage because it's something we need to be prepared for now. Um, uh, but how it was, how we first compounded it was 0.1% ropivacaine with 0.5 uh, micrograms per ml of uh, dexmedetomidine. And uh, it, with this, uh, you see a faster onset, uh, again, the denser block, the longer duration, fewer PCA boluses, less pruritus, less nausea. And uh, with these continuous infusions, there's no statistical difference between having bradycardia and hypotension. And that's as compared to fentanyl in the, with, yes, the, with the BUB? With them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is a niche, and that is we have the occasional patient who does not want exposure to opioids, period. And so we have this as an alternative. The other patient population is um, the patient who's going to be tested, urine drug screens, will show up the fentanyl that's in a ropivipane fentanyl infusion. And we had a mother who lost her baby over that. The, the Child Protective Services took their baby away because she was on probation. She tested positive for fentanyl and they, huh. I mean, we were all outraged. We were outraged with that. That was really frustrating and we had to go defend her um, for that. Yeah, that's terrible. So it, in patients who either can't have opiates or who don't want them, this is obviously an alternative. Now, let me just ask, though, if you had your if your pharmacist said to you, listen, we'll make whatever you want, having done both, would you prefer to do your 0.1% ropivacaine with 0.5 mics per ml of dexmedetomidine or to do your current kind of back to the old way of fentanyl and, and uh, ropivacaine? What do you think, Michael? I personally would go with the Presidex because you get the less, less nausea and the less pruritus, uh, which is, is actually quite noticeable. Um, uh, and even though it was a game changer going with the intermittent bolus pumps, but uh, I think we could figure it out uh, how to optimize um, those two together. And actually, that's how the studies are done. Fortunately, there are intermittent bolus pumps at 8 mLs, uh, Q40 minutes with 8 mL, Q15 to a max of 30 mLs per hour. Um, uh, and so I think we, there, there's actually really good studies out there to, to frame it after, but there's not enough. Everything else we've talked about actually has meta-analysis behind it, and this does not have a meta-analysis. So really picking out the safety uh, behind it, I, I think... Organizationally, yeah. it's an issue also. We have 12 core faculty who help cover OB anesthesia, um, but we we need locums to help cover nights and weekends, and there's a group of 15 to 20 that we draw from trying to get 25 to 30 anesthesiologists to agree on anything is a major task, <laughs> and someone who's only here occasionally there would be resistance to using something they're not familiar with. And frankly, they shouldn't be using something they're not familiar with. So yeah. I would pro probably default if, if both solutions were, were available default to our 
standard ropivacaine fentanyl mix just because of less administrative burden. Sure. Makes sense, but really interesting. And it sounds like, at least in your experience, Michael, there is some advantage, if nothing else, in the side effects, nausea and puritis um, with that. And then, you know, you would think that when you start using intermittent bolus pumps as opposed to continuous infusion pumps, it would act more like your top-offs, which you said, you know, is quite, um, there's a quite good experience and some data on that being uh, beneficial, right, with Presidex, with uh, dexmedetomidine. Oh. Residents love the intermittent bolus pumps. They're no longer called nearly as often in the middle of the night for yeah. for and I personally think that the combination of a duropuncture epidural and a programmed intermittent bolus pump is miraculous. There's almost never a need for a top-off. For yeah, I, I would have loved to have that as a resident. And, you know, I think uh, it makes sense. I mean, it, you, we all have experienced that where the infusion is going and, and the labor epidural isn't working and the woman's having pain and you come and do a hand bolus and then it's perfect. Uh, of course, then it you, you know, an hour later, you're doing it again, right? So essentially, this is just mimicking that. It's doing the boluses instead of the infusion. Um, all right, let's talk about peripheral nerve blocks and dexmedetomidine. What, what do you know there? What have you found? So this is where we had the majority of the experience before we had the shortage. Um, we, we do a lot of regional in our group. And so, uh, and we have a lot of, it's a county hospital. And so we have a lot of substance use disorders uh, and, uh, so trying to do as much opiate sparing techniques and prolong that as much as possible with our, with our patient population is really important. Uh, also they have, um, they tend to be admitted for longer too. So we have them. So it's not, you know, it, it would be hard using it in a outpatient surgery center where they're going to be discharged in 30 minutes. Like you want fast turnover, you know, you're going to have a pretty long, uh, profound block and you need to watch these people or, or having them. So take, take this, take that into account. So, um, so anytime you add dexmedetomidine to these blocks, uh, it will, uh, you're adding anywhere between 0.5 to two mics per kilogram to, to the, uh, block solution. So you got to remember where this is going to be. So if you're doing a super clav or an interscaling, you're going to paralyze that phrenic nerve for a long, long time. <laughs> So, uh, don't just add it to everything. Um, so, uh, use your clinical decision-making skills. Um, also it's going to cause a little, uh, sedation because you are using relatively high doses, but again, uh, the studies, it's been studied extensively even here in the States, um, uh, where it prolongs it at least six hours. Um, and I've had a, a solid 30 hour block with, with using Presidex, uh, up to, two mics per um that's two mics per kilo per so kilo. so you're talking about in a hundred kilo and is that ideal body weight or lean body weight or total body weight what it's do you total do there? body weight because it's so fat soluble it's it's total body weight and so okay. i i have the max of the 201 because that's all we have we have the concentrated little vials and i'm not going to yeah. grab one uh and also uh you know, you need to have some contraindications in your mind. Like for me, if the patient's coming out and they're hypotensive, you're not going to give a slug of Presidex. Um, uh, it causes a little bit of, uh, I don't give it. And if the patient's already bradycardic, if they have severe pulmonary hypertension, because we have, as we've talked about, it's got some alpha-1 agonism going on, uh, severe OSA, 
right? It's going to cause sedation and they're going to sleep, even though it preserves a uh, um, respiratory status, uh, their, their breathing, their respiratory drive. Uh, it, uh, if they obstruct when they sleep, they obstruct when they sleep. So sure. that's, what, that's what I tell my residents often. Um, and then for, uh, if they have acute or chronic respiratory failure, I'd be careful with this. Um, if they're morbidly obese, again, due to that, they could have OHSA and sorry, OSA or obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Um, and then any shock state, just I, I'd be careful using it. And then really high frailty, um, you would, you need to really drop your dose or don't use it at all. Um, it's kind of my contraindications in my mind. Yeah. So it sounds like for a relatively, you know, healthy patient having, let's say, a leg surgery done under a nerve block, you can really get longer duration of action, longer pain control. You said you had 30 hours of, uh, of effect, right? So you could really do this and in, in a patient that you're not so worried about respiratory obstruction, hypotension, bradycardia, et cetera, then, you know, this might be a really nice option. Last year, I had sh shoulder surgery. I had three hours of pain relief from a pure pivocaine spinal, I mean, uh, uh, interscaling. And I thought, why did we even do it? Right, right. You, you need, you need long, you want a lot longer than that. Um, now, I mean, I guess the question then, Leonard, would be, you know, if you could go back, would you want them to put some dexmedetomidine in there, knowing you might end up with a phrenic nerve block for, you know, 30 hours? Fortunately, I don't have pulmonary compromise. I asked them for for either dexmedetomidine or dexamethasone, but nope, that's not the way they did it at that institution. So, it's like, wow, even for a even for a colleague, they wouldn't do it, huh? Yeah. So, anyways, I, I think we have a better way of doing things. <laughs> that's right. Well, so next time you'll have Michael do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, so um, the consideration discharge as well. Right. So yep. if you need to, if they're going to have early PT or very early discharge, you might want to drop, uh, how, how your concentration, um, sure. that you're using. And can you know, it's interesting, right? Go ahead, Leonard. Sorry. In Kenya, did you use it for peripheral nerve blocks? Yes, we did. Uh, well, it depends if they were being discharged, but in, in Kenya we were, cause again, uh, they don't have opiates on the floor. So you need, they're really big in a global setting to, to try to utilize your regional techniques as much as possible. And have you tried, you know, how, how some of the studies for the, um, other methods looked at big doses, you've tried small doses and found them to be effective. Any, have you ever tried with the peripheral nerve blocks to use, you know, a, a microdose to see if that played any role or no? Microdose I've, I've done down to 0.25 per, um, uh, that, that would be a really good question of like throwing just four mics into, I think it would also depend on the block that you're doing. If you're doing a, a nerve block versus doing a plane block, mm -hmm. you're just doing it so much. Um, uh, we've, again, we've used it in ESP blocks for, for rib fractures and, you know, we, ha we live close to the, the desert area. So we get the motorcyclists and the four by fours coming in. Um, and it's great for that patient population doing that, the higher dose, but the micro dosing for, for nerve, not uh, that, I think that would be really interesting for more study. And again, a lot of these studies tend to look at 0.5 to two. And there was a, a study where they actually looked at, uh, increasing the dose 
And uh, they did find that the optimal dose was two micrograms per kilogram, which again is a whopping dose because it is completely fat soluble. So it, it does eventually go everywhere and it will reach the brain eventually. Do you feel like these patients who are going to get these big doses, like two mg per kg, um, need to be A, inpatient, and B, in a monitored bed? Uh, I mean, it depends when you do the block first. So if you do a pre-op block, it actually works out really well to where they're not nearly as sedated by the time the, the case is done. Um and however, if you do it as a post-op block, yeah, you, you need to make sure that they're monitored, have continuous O2 SAT monitoring. Um, again, it, it's it's kind of different per patient and how how much they get they become sedated by it. I I found if you only have a problem, you'll see it in the first hour or so. I tend to keep the patients in the PACU for an hour. You can drop the blood pressure, you can drop the high heart rate, you can get sedated. If you don't have that in after an hour, you're not going to get it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's not like Duramorph where it could be 24 hours later when you see an effect. It's this is you're going to if it's going to happen, you're going to see it. And if you don't see it, you're good. Yep. Correct. Great. All right. Um, fabulous. Anything else that you want to say before we move on? On um, peripheral nerve blocks? Use your head. I mean, just yeah. <laughs> just think about the don't just, you know, as clinicians, um, you you need to think about the clinical you you're using a medication or using something as a tool to to treat and manage a patient through their clinical journey. So just take that whole picture into consideration and don't just X equals Y in this when you don't realize that maybe it didn't apply to this patient. Um, you can't cookie cutter this stuff. Um, yeah. I think if you unless you work extensively with the group and you figure out a dose that works with their pathway, um, then I think you can make it a little bit more streamlined. But again, you, you need to have an idea of what your contraindications are. Right. All right. Did you want to say a couple words about nebulized? Uh, obviously, this is not the same as what we've been talking about, but did you want to say a couple words about nebulized dexmedetomony? Sure. And a couple words about uh, um, intravenous dex sure. in the OB population. So there have been uh, two publications, international publications, about the use of nebulized dexmedetomidine for posterior puncture headaches. As you know, lots of things have been tried for posterior puncture headaches. The epidural blood patch remains the gold standard, though more rec recent studies show it doesn't work quite as well as we thought it did. Um, instead of a 90% efficacy, maybe it's as low as a 60% efficacy. In addition, for someone who had a challenging epidural placement that resulted in a in an inadvertent uh, dural puncture, sticking a needle back in there, even though we all know we're better than our colleagues, but we can learn from their mistakes and their encounters and say, well, it is a higher risk placement. Patients, you know, are reluctant to consider epidural blood patches. Um, so we started using uh, nebulized dexmedetomidine based on these published studies at one microgram per kilo nebulized. <clears throat> and again, um, can see a mild drop, 10% drop in the blood pressure, you know, less than 10 beats per minute drop in the heart rate. And you'll see it in the first hour. So uh, we won't do it with someone who has 
borderline bradycardia or borderline low blood pressure. Um, we've gotten very nice results with it. We've, and the side effect profile is essentially nil. Um, so we're using this as a part of our conservative management fluids, caffeine, <clears throat> and nebulized dexmedetomidine. And, you know, humble brag, we don't have enough posterior puncture headaches to really develop a fast experience with treating it. Now, I, th I thought we should do a study, but to get the adequate end, we'd probably need to do it for three years. And so maybe a larger institution would be interested in that or multi-center. Very interesting. All right. And then IV, I mean, we, we all know about the use, I, I think, of, you know, IV for sedation in the ICU, but you're talking specifically in the OB population. So how do you use IV dexmedetomidine there? Well, there are several issues. Um, one of our major concerns in OB anesthesia is, is helping the mother bond with the infant, um, achieving early breastfeeding success, um, so we don't want sedation. Versed's a terrible drug, you know, in the OB population. Um, and so the dexmedetomidine not associated with amnesia is excellent. There's some people who want an epidural but are just too agitated to receive it. And so some dex, gentle dexmedetomidine sedation at that point can be very useful. <clears throat> There's been reports. I have no personal experience on using it for awake intubations uh, for OB patients having cesarean deliveries. Um, Intraop sedation analgesia, there's an increasing recognition. At least 30% of women have significant intraoperative discomfort or pain during a cesarean delivery. It can be as high as 60%. We don't tend to ask for this. And then if we do ask about it, a lot of these women don't want to be treated. They want to be awake and aware. But if they do want to be treated, I think dexmedetomidine can be a very useful modality intravenously. It's well documented for uh, using shivering. Um, lots of different drugs have been used for that. Um, it's well documented. Uh, it's not something I pursue. We get it as a side effect from its use otherwise. <clears throat> There's a suggestion it might be useful in the prevention of PTSD. It's a significant minority of cesarean delivery patients go on to develop PTSD because of how, I mean, it's a chaotic experience from a patient's point of view. I mean, having a crash section is one of the most scary things a patient can go through. And so there's just been some anecdotal experience that it might help with that. Um, really no data, it's just anecdote at this point. However, it's, it has been studied in trauma patients though, where they saw uh, from a 24% uh, occurrence of PTSD and major traumas to 12% in the utilization of uh, Prestex uh, during the surgery, hmm. which is wild. Um, I yeah. didn't realize that it was that prevalent and two, that it would cause almost a 50% reduction. Uh, it, maybe it was... I think it was 12, uh, 24 to 14%, something like that. Um, but almost a, a 50% reduction. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, very, very interesting stuff. Thank you both for going over this. Let's turn to the point in our show where we make random recommendations. What would you recommend the audience check out for fun? Michael, you go first. Okay. So my random recommendation, 
uh, is Crokinole. <laughs> it's a funny sounding uh, na- uh, name for this game. It's a tabletop game that was developed in Canada, whereby two to four players take turns flipping, flicking discs on this outer edge of the board towards the center. Um, and it's, it's great because it's easy and engaging for beginners to pick up the game, but it can very quickly get very advanced in strategy and skill. Um, it pairs well with a good brew and some good company. That sounds awesome. And can kids do it? Like, could my 12 and 10 year olds do it or no? Oh yeah. Yeah. And my son who's seven loves to oh. try to play too. And it's Crokinole. How do you spell it? Crokinole. C-R-O-N, sorry. C R O. K-I-N-O-L-E. There we go. Crokinole. Okay. Doesn't your neighborhood get together to play? Yeah. Our, so every other Tuesday, our, our whole neighborhood gets together. We've literally kind of developed the only league in California. Uh, wow. This game. It's kind of a, a random game that my neighbor got into during COVID, and it's just something fun we all do. I will definitely be checking it out. Thank you. All right. How about you, Leonard? Um, so I love to read science fiction and history. Um on the science fiction side, I recently read a great short book called Elder Race by Adrian Tchaikovsky. He's a British writer. Um, all good science fiction is ultimately about us, about the human condition, and put, put us in different situations, aliens who reflect on Anna. And so it's an interesting meditation on the human experience, isolation, and what it, it is very thought-provoking, but very entertaining to read. Very cool. All right. And it's Alder, like A-L-D-E-R? Uh, Alder, E-L-D-E-R. E-L-D-E-R. Okay. Elder Race. Interesting. Okay. I am a science fiction fan, so I will have to check that out too. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to recommend a TV show, which I'm going to say right up front is not very good, but it is a really um, easy TV show to watch in little pieces, especially with kids. So my, even my five-year-old, so it's called Sugar Rush. It's on Netflix. It's a baking show. Uh, and it's kind of almost, um, ridiculously, uh, you know, um, kind of generic at times. And, and, uh, but what they do is they have uh, four teams. They each start off. There's a theme. They each start off with a cupcake round. So they make a cupcake on the theme. Then there's judges. One team is eliminated. The th- next, the three remaining teams go on to do a confection round on a different theme. Two, one team is eliminated, and the final two teams bake a cake on another theme. And then the winner of the cake baking round gets ten thousand dollars. But it is, uh, it is. You can watch just like just the cupcake round, and it takes like ten or fifteen minutes, and then you know break it up like that. So. You know, and it's fun and the cakes and everything look delicious. And so even my five-year-old will, will watch it. And if we just have a few minutes, you know, to, to kill and they want to watch something, we'll throw that on. So for that purpose and probably that purpose alone, I will recommend checking out Sugar Rush. Um, and, uh, that's about it is not the highest quality TV that you'll ever see. How, how does it compare to one of my favorite shows, The Great British Baking Show? We love The Great British Baking Show. We watched all of it. We, we, the only reason we don't still watch it is because we ran out of seasons, but, um, I will say that's a much higher quality show. So this is not high quality in that sense. Um, but it is, uh, you know, an easy way to fill a short amount of time that, uh, kids of all ages can be into. So, um, but I would highly recommend doing the great British baking show, great British baking show first, uh, because that also has three, three rounds and you can break it up and, and do a similar thing with it. Um, all right, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. 
That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 